Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemispherical podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, campaigning against Brexit in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, unable to vote because I'm not an Australian citizen in Melbourne, Australia. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah, because I'm a New Zealander, so I can't vote. Crazy. We'll focus mainly on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy because we love bewitching spells, body-snatching aliens and brain-altering experiments. Dan, how are you? (laughs) Oh, very well, very well. Very refreshed from my vacation in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, How are you, Conrad? I'm very well, yes, enjoying the springtime sunshine here. It's Easter for me at the moment. Yeah, well, my holiday in New Zealand was anything but uh, warm. It was (laughs) actually very cold. (laughs) I think it got down to minus three degrees at one stage. But breathtakingly beautiful, I understand. Yes, yes, just casually driving through Mordor and the rest of the Lord of the Rings (laughs) set. (laughs) Um, We also attended a wedding, so that was nice to kind of break up the the driving, the immense amount of driving that we uh, we did. Mm. Uh, any mailbag today, Conrad? Well, yes, we've been getting lots of mail. We had a message from Joe Fed, who's been slowly working his way through our back catalogue. Mm-hmm. He was listening to our episode on Razorback, and he agreed that the vision of the Razorback in the car window was really done well. But there was something that we didn't mention, which is the scene after when they find the car. There's no blood on the passenger's side of the car Right, (laughs) right. So he was a bit confused about how this uh, evil pig could have ravaged the uh, female character and leave not a trace of blood. Mm. Maybe that was censorship. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. I mean, pigs are quite thorough when they eat. They pretty much eat anything, so... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he licked it clean. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) We also heard from the star of the hole, (laughs) believe it or not. Wow. Yes, Chris Masoglia replied to us when I tweeted a looping video of Nathan Gamble bouncing a basketball off of his head. I love that. (laughs) Which quite a few people found that really hypnotic, (laughs) including David Bruckner, bless him, but uh, I said to Chris Masoglia, that looked like it really hurt. And he actually did reply and say, yeah, but I got him back pretty good. Laugh out loud. Oh. So <laughs> I wonder what he did to poor little Nathan Gamble. Mm, maybe a widgie or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, we heard from Chad Rommel, who's become a fan over the last few weeks, and he was asking us whether Vermithrax pejorative is deep within the dark recesses of the oubliette. 
because Dan is a fan of fantasy, so I hope you get to release this one one day. So he's talking about Disney's Dragon Slayer. Oh, okay. Never seen that. I have, but very long time ago. So I think that is a good oubliette candidate. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Chad. That one's going on the oubliette roulette. And speaking of the roulette, we do have a listener's choice film for us today, don't we, Dan? Yes, we do. Uh, and this came from our listener, Redma61. And I think it's your turn, Conrad, to retrieve the film. Oh, yes, it is. So I better make my way over there and hope the water's gone away from last time. Oh, yes. <gasps> oh, it appears that... They've all started wearing blue blazers down there and eating yoghurt. Oh, must be a new trend. Well, this guy looks pretty spiffy. I'll grab him. Careful, I want to save my fluids. And back again. Mm, What do you have? So today I have for us Disturbing Behaviour, which is a 1998 thriller directed by David Nutter and starring James Marsden, Katie Holmes... Nick Stahl, Bruce Greenwood, and William Sadler. Mm. Well, this one completely passed me by. So, as you can imagine, very excited to delve into a 1998 (laughs) horror movie. I mean, I know how you adore that decade. (laughs) So, the synopsis for this movie is as follows. James Marsden stars as Steve, your average 25-year-old teenager, (laughs) who moves to the idyllic town of Cradle Bay with his family after the death by suicide of his older brother, Alan, played by Ethan Embry in a blink-and-you'll-miss-him flashback. He's soon taught how to identify the local high school's cliques by the social outcasts he befriends. Gavin, a brooding Nick Stahl who's apparently swallowed a thesaurus. Rachel, a post-Dawson's Creek Katie Holmes with edgy piercings. And UV, an albino played by Chad Donella in extreme whiteface. But something's very wrong with Cradle Bay's growing in crowd. They look like every baby boomer parent's wet dream, sporting brill-creamed side partings, sweater vests and school team blazers. They're getting straight A's studying together in the local yoghurt shop. But whenever they become sexually aroused, they develop a serious case of red eye and go on a murder murderous rampage, and their numbers seem to be growing daily as they assimilate more classmates into their squeaky clean ranks. Steve and his pals must uncover the shocking conspiracy between Bruce Greenwood's mustachioed guidance counsellor and the local PTA before they too become unwilling members of the Stepford Study Group. Wow, what a synopsis. (laughs) Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. (laughs) Okay, let's take a break and then have a look at it. Welcome back, listeners, and we will be talking about Disturbing Behaviour, the 1998 thriller horror from the 90s, Conrad's favourite decade. Mm. Uh, We had both not seen this film, even though I had definitely heard of it and it was always on TV. Conrad, 
First thoughts? Well, I think this one has been compared very often to The Stepford Wives. Yes. The uh, 1975 thriller which was written by Ira Levin, where a woman is discovering that the husbands of the town that she's just moved to are replacing all of their wives with robots that just serve food and have sex and behave themselves. <laughs> and it was a sharply satirical take on women's liberation and the male reaction to that. So this is the same thing, but it's parents doing it to their wayward teenagers. So it's a logical extension of that idea. I think that sort of summarises the theme of the movie, or at mm. least what it's going for. I mean, I found it very similar to other films, like uh, Invasion of Body Snatchers, mm. or Society, even just a whole bunch of people pretty much uniformly being the same person, really, mm. or being the same and having no sense of diversity or sense of choice and being subservient or controlled. Mm. The other movie in terms of 90s horror, uh, The Faculty, was pretty much exactly the same premise except the teachers were the ones that were being <laughs> acting a little bit strangely instead of the students. And I think it also had aliens or something like that. Yeah, the whole kind of mind control aspect and kind of controlling students and making them not delinquents and rebels and <laughs> skipping school and stuff like that. And they're doing their homework and only eating yogurt because <laughs> yogurt is, is <laughs> the exact <laughs> um, antithesis of drugs and alcohol. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, which may have been a bit of a swipe at some yogurt culture that was growing up in America at the time. I yes, don't know. yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I did a lot of similarities as well to Stepford Wives in the fact that when they were assimilated into the blue ribbons, as they're called, they were very reminiscent of 1950s kids. They were very prim and proper and they wore matching blazers and mm. essentially the cheerleaders and the jocks of the school. Yeah, which is one of the things that I find particularly interesting about this film in terms of its choice of representation of what the adults would want. Because it feels to me as though it's the wrong decade. Mm -hmm. For adults who would have been parents in 1998 they wouldn't have been teenagers in 1950. Uh -huh. If you do the math, it doesn't work. They'd have to be parents who were 60 or 70 years old. So that just <laughs> that doesn't really work. So why are we idealising teenagers in 1950? And I think it's possibly because that's when the teenager was invented. So perhaps it's casting back to a time before the 60s and the 70s and everything went horribly wrong with wayward kids mm -hmm. with alcohol and drugs and rebels without a cause. Rock and roll music. Yes. yes. <laughs> Staying out late and parking in cars and all that kind of thing. So it's an interesting choice of image to idealise, which is these kids with brill creamed hair and slacks and blazers, uh -huh. eating their yoghurt and studying hard and going home before curfew. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you never really saw them studying no. or <laughs> doing well at school like i felt like they tried the least amount to show that they were changing mm. essentially you knew they had assimilated into the blue ribbon group because they just wore blue 
blazers <laughs> and <laughs> dress themselves properly. I don't know. I, I felt like they weren't that well behaved as well. They they caused a ruckus in the cafeteria. They beat up Steve, and that's not the sort of behaviour you want from well-adjusted students, is it? No, it's not. And this is yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that too because I was watching this thinking these aren't prim and proper lovely mild-mannered people holding the door for their elders and being respectful they're being rude to the janitor entitled bullying other people one memorable scene has them chasing down Steve through a blue backlit rainy night so it's almost like the lost boys with them running through the woods and shouting yes. his name from a distance without them being able to see him uh-huh. these aren't good kids this isn't model behavior i was expecting if we were going the stepford wives route that you'd have all these kids that would just suddenly become freakishly prim and well behaved and yes. model students and that that would be genuinely disturbing behaviour, but they just seem to be assholes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I think of another film that has a very similar premise, Pleasantville. Oh, I love that movie. That's an interesting comparison. Yeah, they enter into this 50s black and white world, and when they start influencing these people to do either sexual things or, or alcohol or that sort of stuff, they start turning into colour and start thinking for themselves and it didn't do that in disturbing behavior these people didn't become very prim and proper like you said and i felt like that was a big downfall of this film that there wasn't really a change no in these people no they just joined a gang and (laughs) still behaved badly (laughs) yes i mean the thing that they reminded me of the most is a fraternity at college yes rather than high school students suddenly turning into model students. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it was sort of an initiation and then they just became entitled assholes. But it's really interesting you making the comparison to Pleasantville. That's a film I love. And it's it's approach of presenting this idyllic black and white 50s world that becomes corrupted by modern influences, by feminism, by free will, alcohol, sex, all those kinds of things, until the characters begin to turn from black and white to Mm colour and this threatens the conformity of this town so the conservative reactionaries start putting signs in their shop windows saying no coloureds allowed so Mm -hmm. the film starts to incorporate racial tensions and those sorts of social issues as well. It's a really interesting film that does an awful lot with the imagery and the themes that it's representing that that it incorporates whereas disturbing behaviour I don't feel is as consistent. It references things, but it doesn't present them consistently, mm. so the ideas don't really come across as well, I don't think. Mm. I mean, we ha- we have to really talk about how these people are getting changed as well. So mm. they are getting ganged up by the Blue Ribbons and then somehow, I guess, subdued and then taken to... The scientist guy... Caldecott. Yeah, Dr. Edgar Caldecott. So he's a psychiatrist that is implanting these chips through the eyes of <laughs> yeah. these kids. I don't exactly know how that works. Uh, <laughs> and that is making them behave somehow. Yeah, he's trying to program their behavior and it seems like a combination of a chip being implanted 
inside their eye and also the Ludovico technique which was presented in A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick's film, Yes, where the eye is sort of held open and they're forced to watch these images and hear these phrases and it's sort of programming them in some Mm -hmm. way. But because it's 1998 and we have to have a technological aspect, they also get like a chip stuck in their retina or something. Yeah, yeah. One thing I also noticed, there's one scene where... I think the character Chug, although I thought he, they were saying Chuck, but apparently <laughs> his name is Chug. That's yeah, a great name. He's confronting Katie Holmes' character, Rachel, because he really wants her. He really, really wants her. Mm. And she's kind of being pinned down. And then one of those rat, <laughs> rat deterrent stereos goes off <laughs> and messes with the chip, I guess, in Chug's eye. And he's in agony. He finds the stereo rat deterrent thing and smashes it and then he starts kind of acting like he's a robot Mm. and i thought what like he's not a robot it's just a chip right so why is he making these robot sounds and kind of glitching out yeah like he's mechanical i uh, again consistency like what is going on here (laughs) yes no it's not clear and also the scene with lorna langley in steve's living room when he comes home after being chased through the woods by the the lost blue ribboners (laughs) he finds lorna waiting for him and lorna's sort of the class hottie even and Nick Stahl's character, Gavin, says that she's the subject of all of his masturbatory fantasies. Mm-hmm. And, yes, yeah, she's waiting for him, and she, again, freaks out, ends up semi-naked and attacking him with shards of glass from a mirror. Yes. And it is very odd, and it does seem sort of like a Stepford Wives-type situation where you've got a malfunctioning robot, yeah. but they're not robots. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Another film, a more recent film that I I found was very similar to this, was Get Out, Mm, which I obviously, Get Out was done very well and it had a lot of very subtle themes that were explored in that to do with race. And Mm. yeah, I feel like Get Out did a very similar thing, but in a more subtle way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a good reason why when he was asked which category his film should be nominated in for awards, the director of Get Out, Jordan Peele, said documentary. And that's because, <laughs> um, well, that film just completely opened my eyes and made me think a lot more about the current dynamics of race relations in the US. It's yes. But it's all done with the same sort of satirical yet subtly disturbing style that you get in Ira Levin's writings, Ira Levin being the the author of The Stepford Wives, the book, uh-huh. and uh, Rosemary's Baby, and it's, it's all using that approach. And I, I don't see that in disturbing behaviour, really. It just, it doesn't, ha- as you say, it doesn't have that subtlety. No, not at all. David Nutter, uh, who directed this, he is from X-Files. Yes. This film did feel like an X-Files episode, just spread out very thinly to expand <laughs> the 84 minutes that it did because apparently it was a lot longer his director's cut is 115 minutes Mm. i believe long and it got cut down a good 20 minutes or so to 84 minutes maybe there was a lot of exposition and plot and maybe character development cut out but i felt the movie was long as it was at 84 (laughs) minutes especially kind of from the halfway point to the end it just felt like filler 
a lot of filler and a lot of stuff that didn't really add to the story. What I was most disappointed with was the character of Gavin. Mm. He was the most interesting character to start off with because he wasn't bland. No. And he was a character (laughs) that had motives and, and goals, whereas... Both Katie Holmes' character, Rachel, and James Marsden's character, Steve, were just pretty teenagers. Yes. Or 20-year-olds, I guess, um, that (laughs) said their lines and seemed to have no... (laughs) I don't know. They just seemed to be unaffected by anything that happened. Yeah, they're given very slimly drawn issues that they're supposed to be trying to get over. So Katie Holmes is just the girl from the wrong side of town. Mm. So she has a few lines about, oh, I'll just always be that girl from wherever it is that she's supposed to come from. I've forgotten already. And James Marsden has probably the bigger backstory, which is that his brother killed himself and the family doesn't appear to be communicating about it. They don't seem to be making any kind of progress dealing with it. They've just moved to another town to start again. And there was a lot of backstory. There were a lot of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray that I have. So I have seen them. Mm-hmm. Not all of the additional material that would have made up the 115 minutes is there, but a lot of it is there. Mm-hmm. But I have to say... Even with those deleted scenes, it doesn't really add up to much. And actually, some of them are pretty ridiculous. So the description, for example, of his brother's suicide, which he describes to Katie Holmes on the boat, is this really convoluted story about his brother falling in love with a girl. What? (laughs) And they were supposed to be running away together And for some reason, the parents of the girl stopped her from running away and the brother turned up to where they'd arranged to meet and she wasn't there. So he thought that she'd stood him up. So he shot himself. And then when she found out, she shot herself as well. What? Yeah, so you just listen to James Marsden just spilling all of this out and he's doing his best with it. Uh He's really trying hard and Katie Holmes is trying hard to receive all of this news, but it's just risible. It's just not, you're not able to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't help. And it's really sad because when you listen to the director's commentary, David Nutter really had high hopes for this movie. His lofty ambitions for it were such that he's making comparisons to Ordinary People, which is my favourite movie (laughs) from 1980, the Oscar-winning Robert Redford family drama about a family dealing with the death of the eldest son. And he's making comparisons with this and talking about the family that can't communicate and how this gives the town an opportunity to drive a wedge between the parents and the children and to use their trauma as an excuse to do this treatment on Steve to help him cope in some way or to suppress his emotional feelings or something. And when you hear him describe it, that's an interesting story. Mm. Yes, I would have been interested in that. And his claim is that that's what the film was at sort of nearly two hours in length and the studio did a test screening now William Sadler who plays the janitor in this movie uh, Harwood is that his name mm-hmm. yeah, he says that it tested really well so the studio thought 
this is great. It's going to be our summer blockbuster. So let's cut it down. Mm. I, don't, I don't quite understand the logic there, if that's true. Usually they only start recutting a movie when it tests badly and they're trying to rescue it. So I'm not sure whether William is being a little bit optimistic in his um, appraisal of this situation. But yeah, so apparently they cut it down and took all of the character stuff out. And what you're left with is this 83 minutes, which Mm. often doesn't make a lot of sense. It has to be said, you can feel there are bits missing. Yeah, I just felt the fact that Steve has had a brother commit suicide, I did not feel like it had been explored properly. And the flashbacks were so jarring and glitchy and actually kind of terrifying. Mm. Shouldn't the flashbacks be warm and and good (laughs) memories of his brother, not these intrusive like oh what the hell did i just watch (laughs) who was that (laughs) i mean (laughs) well exactly because they use the same sort of high contrast degraded image effect because it's the 90s so they're using the same effect for his flashbacks of his brother that they use for the blue ribboners when they malfunction and go haywire and start attacking people Uh so are they trying to say that the way that he's dealing with memories of his brother is the same as the blue ribboners when they go wrong and rebel against their conditioning because that's that's not a good comparison to make. No. I mean, surely <laughs> Steve shouldn't be terrified by his brother. He should be distraught and depressed and sad about it. Yeah. Not like nightmares. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, exactly. It should be like Will Wheaton's flashbacks of John Cusack as his dead older brother in Stand By Me, which are all shot through with this lovely summers of your youth sort of golden glow. Yeah, there have been lots of movies that have dealt with the death of an older brother that have <laughs> that have really mined that in useful and heartwarming ways. This isn't one of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In that respect, I felt like the character of Steve didn't change. Mm. Similar to Dead Calm, which we did last episode, you have Ray, who has had the traumatic death of his son, and she's distressed. She's a frail, mm. suffering character. Steve just felt like another teenager from the 90s. Yes. Just a little bit broody, but weren't all teenagers broody? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He seemed just a little bit complacent and just didn't (laughs) really care. And sure, there were the jarring flashbacks that kind of made it seem like, oh, he was going through something, but I felt like his acting wasn't on the level that conveyed that. And so when he, in quotation marks, triumphed over his suffering it didn't feel like he triumphed no was he supposed to have triumphed over his brother's death i did i missed that yeah exactly exactly (laughs) now it's time for random trivia dan what nugget of random trivia do you have from disturbing behavior So there's a scene where Steve and the janitor are talking and Steve grabs a book from the janitor and it happens to be Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Apparently, I'm not sure actually, but uh, there is a short story by that author called Harrison Bergeron and the plot involves mind control 
in the form of headbands. Ah. So I guess a little bit of a reference to the whole mind control theme of the film. I thought it was just there to show that he was secretly clever. <laughs> I mean, that too, that too. <laughs> that <laughs> but, too. But a little slight reference to... The mind control as well. Yes, the mind-bending science fiction of Kurt Vonnegut, which I've never sampled, actually, I'll be honest. I've never read anything of his. Me neither, so this could be all untrue. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Great. Um, That's our random trivia. Yes. (laughs) The most disappointing thing I've felt about this film that that wasn't explored was Gavin. Mm. Gavin was such a great character. And when he got turned to a blue ribbon, it's almost like he just became a no character. Yeah. Like he wasn't even the character at all. Why? There was so <laughs> much they could have done with that. They could have had so much tension between what used to be an incredibly great friend to Steve and to now an enemy to Steve. And that's great tension there. Mm. And there was a deleted scene, the ending. Yes. The original ending that they had where Gavin gets killed, spoilers obviously, <laughs> um, which had a lot more closure mm. and at least they did explore at least some sort of tension between the character of Gavin and Steve and also UV as well because UV is the one that ends up killing Gavin and that's great drama. Mm. I know that Apparently in the test screenings, people didn't like that Gavin was killed or was too sad or I don't know. I think there was also, they were trying to set up a sequel really? as well. That's why Gavin was alive at the end <laughs> in that horrible last scene where... <laughs> turns up as the supply teacher from hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there a lot of problematic things about that last scene. First of all, I guess it was supposed to be portrayed as this very badass school with terrible students who end up all being black yes so that's a little bit racist Um, hugely (laughs) and then he shows up and i guess it's supposed to be some twist wow gavin's still alive but he's not the scientist no he's not able to make more blue ribbons no he's just a blue ribbon that acts as a blue ribbon that's not a threat (laughs) yeah exactly Well, no, I mean, there's a threat to the school in that he will probably have a sexual urge at some point and kill one of the students. Yeah, but, I guess so. Uh, other than that, no, it's not really a, a sequel starter, is it? Unless they're trying to pretend that he has the scientific knowledge to carry on Dr. Caldecott's work. Hmm. Yes, the ending doesn't make any sense. The deleted scene ending does seem to go on a very long time trying yes. to create an emotional response in the audience for a character that it hasn't paid enough time on in the second and third acts of the movie for you to feel that invested yes he's just sort of vanishes he brill creams his hair and then vanishes from the remainder of the movie after being introduced sort of like a jd character from heathers the christian slater character Uh who is very loquacious and talks in this very mannered way that they used to write on x-files although the writer scott rosenberg for this movie is not an x-files writer as far as i know but he writes in that same way that Mulder speaks, where it's it's not actually all that intelligent when you listen to it very closely. It's just that they've stuffed it full of really lengthy adjectives that they found in a thesaurus. So he has this massive speech that introduces his character in the school cafeteria, where he's introducing all of the different cliques. Mm. And 
it's a really lengthy piece of dialogue. It's a couple yeah. of pages at least. It's almost Shakespearean in its delivery, really. It is, yeah, and he nails it. I mean, he really sells it well. So you're sort of thinking, okay, this is an interesting guy. It's not very realistic. No human being could speak that long and be that articulate. No. <laughs> but he's sort of set up as this interesting character and then he just sort of vanishes and it's yeah. really sad. Yeah, I mean, uh, additionally to the fact that his character vanishes, the movie just turns cliche. Mm. So they go to a psychiatric ward to find out something. <laughs> and then all the mental patients are just portrayed as monsters. Yeah. Just terrifying facades of what humanity can become. It's, it is a lot cringy to see. Yeah, and especially seeing as there only seems to be one security guard as staff. So you yeah. have all of these subjects of failed pharmacological experiments teetering on the edge of pretty serious self-harm. One of them's wandering around covered in blood where he's cut himself. There are people that are ramming their heads against things and mm. screaming and roaming the corridors. And you seem to have one member of staff. <laughs> and you think... On what planet is this happening? Because all of a sudden we're in some ridiculous Eli Roth movie. It's just suddenly seems to have changed gears completely for that scene. Mm, and, and the fact that I was kind of annoyed that they portrayed this hospital as being just utterly filthy as well. Mm. Just grime everywhere. <laughs> like it would have been so cool if they portrayed it as a more sterile clinical environment and it would have been a completely stark contrast to the grungy high school that everyone attended. Mm. But no, they didn't do that. It was just filthy everywhere <laughs> yeah it's just a gothic castle with lunatics self-harming in the hallways it's very difficult to take the film seriously when it keeps pulling this kind of schlock out of the bag i mean even talking about gavin i mean in the opening scene of the movie he witnesses somebody murdering his girlfriend and shooting a police officer in cold blood and the other police officer present played by steve railsbeck mm -hmm. covering it all up and letting him go free and yet when we meet gavin for the first time when steve meets him in the school He's fine. Mm. He's a little bit acerbic. He's wryly intelligent about... Surely he should be ringing alarm bells like crazy. Something is really bad going on in this town. But apparently he's just fine with that. That's, that's mm. not a problem. I know. I know. Surely he should be not going to school at all, really. Um, <laughs> I also had some problems with the fact that it almost seemed too small scale as well. They were purely just controlling students. Mm. And also the fact that the parents never seemed to be anywhere. No. I mean, that plagues pretty much all teenage kind of horror thrillers anyway. Yeah, But does, yeah. <laughs> the parents showed up when they moved into the town, uh, Steve's parents, and then... They just disappear mm. and they, they reappear when they uh, announce that he's been entered into this program. Um, but they just don't seem to have any presence. When Steve and he, he goes to his sister and they, they try to run away from the parents, I felt like, well, I guess the parents aren't there anyway. So <laughs> I didn't feel like they were, they were doing anything that drastic. Like if there was a little bit of the parents were there and, and there was sort of some sort of drama in, between the parents and 
the sun and some sort of distance and division, then it makes sense. But because they were never there, I didn't feel like running away was that big a deal. <laughs> no, indeed. And a lot of that is on the cutting room floor again. Right. Some of the deleted scenes are scenes between Steve and his parents. Ah. And all of this is part of the ordinary people style drama because he can't seem to communicate with his father at all and his mother just seems to have completely closed off. Right. But then you also okay. have his sister who has something like two scenes. Yeah. She has the one scene where she's dissecting an alien, yeah. which is clear. X-Files. Yeah, clearly an X-Files <laughs> reference. It's a toy, just in case everybody's wondering what genre of movie we're dealing with here. Um, yeah, and she has one scene where she's walking and talking with Steve. But this, again, isn't really developed. I mean, he's supposedly going back to rescue his sister and take her away from this threat. But you've never had any scenes where you got a sense of this escalating threat towards his sister, which could have been a really good motivating factor for yeah. him. If he's lost a brother, perhaps he'd care about the other sibling even more than one normally would or be extra protective. Exactly. But she's just not in the movie. There's the scene where Lorna is supposedly in his house because they were studying together, which you could perceive as a sort of threat. You know, they're starting to sort of groom her before she gets initiated. Sure. But it doesn't go anywhere. She's ne They're never actually in a scene together. So again, it doesn't work. So yes, you get to that scene at the end where... He rescues her and does that ridiculous, unnecessary motorcycle <laughs> stunt yes. onto the ferry and they go away. And I'm sitting there thinking, hang on, where are the parents in this equation? <laughs> you can't just murder the entire teenage population of yeah. the town, which is effectively what the janitor does by using one of these rat traps that emits a high-pitched sound that supposedly deters rats, and it's introduced early on, and you immediately think, hmm, oh. <laughs> Chekhov's rat machine. I don't know yes. how you would refer to it, but <laughs> he uses this to become the Pied Piper of Stepford and lead all of the teenage kids over a cliff yes. in his pickup truck, which is a great scene. But so you have this sort of mass death and the murder of Caldecott in the middle of the street and goodness knows what else. And then he just turns up, takes his sister, goes on a ferry and goes away and, and says, we're going to live somewhere else or we're going back to where we came from. And you're supposed to think, and the parents are fine with this? There's yeah. going to be no investigation? Yeah. What reality is this? Yeah. I mean, with all of those scenes cut out. They're pretty loving parents, really. They're very caring. <laughs> like, why would you leave them? <laughs> Wouldn't you rescue them too? Yeah. What's going yeah. on? <laughs> and I'm not sure whether to take it seriously, like a, a stone-cold psychological thriller, mm. or whether to take it like The Stepford Wives, which is sort of like that, but with this wry, slightly tongue-in-cheek black humour underneath it similar to Get Out as well, or whether it's meant to be something like Society, the first film we ever covered, mm. which is completely surreal and absurd, but underneath it all has this incredibly wry social commentary going on that's mm. quite rich and nuanced and interesting the more you dive into it. Mm. But here with this... I'm not sure on what level to take it seriously or how to read it, really. Hmm. I mean, my understanding, and I'm not sure whether this is entirely true, but I think David Nutter had one idea 
for where the film was going. And I think the writer, Scott Rosenberg, had a different idea. I think uh, Scott Rosenberg wanted it to be more of a two-dimensional popcorn flick that had some great 90s grunge music and a whole <laughs> bunch of pretty teenagers and made a buck at the box office. I think David Nutter was going for a much more serious tone and a lot more atmosphere and a lot more sort of character development. And in the end, there was just a little bit of both mm. and it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Also, obviously, the studio was a huge part of how it became in the end as well. And David Nutter did not enjoy the experience and you can hear that on the commentary. Um, <laughs> you know, you're allowed one fuck in a PG-rated movie. Uh-huh. So Steve turns around to Caldecott and says, oh, shut the fuck up in the finale. And <laughs> on the commentary, David Nutter says that this was his secret message to the film's producers. Right. As an in-joke. Yeah. Yes, it was not a good experience for him, by all accounts. And he is a very accomplished director. I mean, he directs Game of Thrones now. Yeah, but he hasn't done a feature film since. And Disturbing Behaviour was pretty much his first feature. I mean, I think he did two TV movies beforehand. Right. But Disturbing Behaviour was pretty much his only and last feature film. Mm. I guess his experience was just not a good experience. Uh, There's also another line in the film where I think James Marsden said, I'm just making this shit up as it goes. (laughs) 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 I felt like that pretty much sums up the second half of the entire film. Uh, Speaking of lofty ambitions, I felt like the music had lofty ambitions. You think so? (laughs) But I I did find it it was just often interrupted by let's stick some 90s music to tell the viewers it's the 90s. Yes. And (laughs) just every transitional scene, 90s music for 20 seconds, stop, more score. Next scene, 90s music. It really disrupted the atmosphere of the film. Mm. And I know the score isn't amazing, but it's still a score that tries. It is, yeah. I mean, from the opening of the movie, which it actually has an opening title sequence, so kudos to them because it tries to set a mood. Mm -hmm. It isn't just credits over an opening montage with an alt-rock number showing kids at school, which I just feel like I've seen a thousand times. (laughs) It's strange abstract lights on the screen and the credits appearing and Mark Snow's opening title, which sounds all the world like Tubular Bells, quite frankly. Yes, I got that too. (laughs) Tubular Bells with orchestra hits thrown in randomly, which I found really irritating. I found them kind of reminiscent of the Law and Order between (laughs) every scene. It was just all of these, let's do a huge hit. (laughs) Yeah, very irritating. It's almost like they lacked in the sound department, sound design department, and they thought, I'll just put an orchestral hit here instead of a sound effect. (laughs) Let's do that instead. So when Gavin knees Stephen in the stomach, there's a huge orchestral hit there <laughs> instead of a a punch sound, which is I found a little bit interesting. But, I mean, I think they tried, and they had some interesting synth pads and I think some prepared piano, mm. or it was a synth, I'm not sure. I think it was a prepared piano. So I think they tried. Yeah. 
It's another X-Files score, though. I mean, I do like Mark Snow's X-Files music, but it needs time to establish a mood. And I think he always had the time to establish a mood in the X-Files, whereas here, as you say, it's always punctuated every five minutes by another 30 seconds of an alt-rock track that we want to stick on the soundtrack album. (laughs) And all of them were, (laughs) were so on the nose in terms of their lyrical content as well. So you have... Harvey Danger's flagpole sitter cropping up on the soundtrack as they're running away from Caldecott's mm. hospital of failed psychological experiments. Yes. And the line that screeches out over the soundtrack is, paranoia, paranoia, everybody's coming to get me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm, a bit redundant. And then right at the end, you've got the song uh, Got You Where I Want You after the reveal that Gavin has survived and is now a student teacher somewhere where black people exist. Mm. So it's it could have been a little bit more subtle than that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I always found, especially in the 90s, all of those little extracts of music from bands, it was just a way to sell soundtracks and albums, really. Yeah. It was just an advert for music. Mm. Also, none of those bands I've ever heard of as well. I mean, <laughs> apart from that, that Paranoia song. So I guess... Bands that just didn't quite make it (laughs) because Disturbing (laughs) Behaviour did not do well at the box office. No, it grossed about 17.5 million on a 15 million budget if Wikipedia is to be believed, which is not Mm. a great return on your investment, is it? No. No, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it has to be said for a horror movie. It's not particularly horrifying, and for a film with disturbing in its title, it's not terribly disturbing either. In fact, most of the time I was just kind of bored. Mm. If you're supposed to be setting up this mystery, what happens to these kids when they turn into blue ribboners, and who's going to be next, and... When you show the audience exactly what's happening at the 45-minute mark, where is there to go from that? And that's probably why, you, as you say, you got the sense that for the latter half of the movie, you're just kind of padding and waiting for it to end Mm. because there's really nowhere dramatically for it to go. Mm. Uh, Another thing, I mean, the fact that Blue Ribbons, uh, the only way you can really tell that they're Blue Ribbons is they dress differently. Yeah. So... It would have been cool if they had converted Rachel into a blue ribbon and we didn't know it. And then she betrayed them all and, Mm. I don't know, shot them or something. That would have been cool, you know, a nice little twist there. (laughs) Undercover blue ribboner. That would have been interesting, yeah. Yeah. But no. But even the presentation of the Blue Ribboners wasn't all that consistent in and of itself. I mean, as well as them not being particularly clean cut. Mm. Also, the malfunctions that they're having. So it's explained by Caldecott that the reason that they freak out and behave violently towards people is because of sexual arousal, that he can control the behaviour of teenagers except for their rampaging hormones, and that's the one thing that throws his whole system out, and that's why he's failed in the past. But it's not presented consistently in terms of what motivates them to go wrong, because in the very first scene, we're introduced to a blue ribboner whose girlfriend very kindly offers to go down on him, mm-hmm. and he says no, because he has a big game tomorrow, yes. and he wants to preserve his fluids. Yes. <laughs> I've never heard that as a uh, rejection for sex before, but it, yes. Fair enough. <laughs> 
so she persists anyway and starts uh, doing the business and mm-hmm. he seems to be enjoying himself and then suddenly in a very shocking moment grabs her head and breaks her neck and then pulls her head into shot and says slut and throws her into the passenger side of the car. So we're presented with a person who, when faced with an offer of sex, reacts badly to it and murders the other person. Yes. But then for the rest of the movie, you have people who are aroused by other people and want to have sex with them, and when they refuse, start to malfunction and glitch out and become violent. So are they overreacting because their behavioural programming tells them that they're 50s kids, they're clean-cut, they shouldn't do this sort of sexy thing, so they overreact, get violent and kill people? Or are their natural sexual urges overcoming their behavioural programming and forcing them to glitch out and get violent and kill people? Which way round is it? Because I can't figure it out and it seems very inconsistent and confusing. Mm. I mean, with uh, the Chug character, when he gets aroused by Rachel, Mm. he just starts throwing just random people around. (laughs) He doesn't go after Rachel at all. No. Um, and in the, in the subsequent scene where he, he tries to get with Rachel, he tries to actually get with her. Mm. He doesn't try to kill her or beat her up or anything. So, yeah, there's no consistency there. No. And that scene is really uncomfortable because yeah. it just looks like a frat boy who is entitled groping because there's actual boob groping in that scene and it's Mm. for all the world it just looks like toxic masculinity a male sexual entitlement being forced on a young girl and it's fertile ground for the film to do something with Mm. but it's not really doing it very well again i mean i've found the film itself the premise of the film is great Mm. they have some great themes and some great morality and ethical Things to explore in the film. They've got some great characters to explore and drama between characters mm. and the fact that it's adults versus teenagers and conformity versus rebellion and, I guess, yogurt versus drugs. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's a lot going for this film, but they never execute it, ever. no. As you say, it's a great cast. James Marsden is a good actor. Nick Starr was a very interesting actor who unfortunately went the way of other stars of Terminator movies and has had problems with drugs and alcohol. So he's been away from acting for quite some time. But he was always fascinating, whatever character he played. Mm-hmm. And Katie Holmes, of course, is a very accomplished young actress. So it's very odd. And the cast and crew, David Nutter's responsible for some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones. He did The Red Wedding and Dance of Dragons. He's a celebrated director. So there's no shortage of talent on hand here. Yes. But the net result is not great. And I'm not sure if it's all studio interference, which was uh, a topic in our previous episode on Dead Calm. Yeah. But at least with Dead Calm, you've got 98% of a great movie and you can press the stop button. (laughs) (laughs) With this one, you're not quite so fortunate. No, no, not at all. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. 
Welcome to the much-anticipated Movie Awards, where we nominate a bunch of our favorite things in a number of completely useless categories. Uh, we always start off with favorite quote. Conrad, what was yours? Mine is just a piece of lunacy from the character UV, the albino, who we haven't talked about a lot. Mm. And he comes up with some great phrases. And my favorite one was, Denial ain't just a river in Italy, bud. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know whether I even heard that quote. There was a lot of mumbled lines in this film, actually. Oh, it's it's nineties mumblecore. <laughs> yeah. How about you? What was your favourite quote? There were some really great lines from um, Gavin, um, as you mm. said, just straight from the thesaurus. But I really love the janitor's lines as well. Obviously, the one where he's descending into the waterfall with all the blue ribbons and he shouts hey teacher leave those kids alone great (laughs) reference to pink floyd but i really loved the line where he's revealed himself to steve as actually not so stupid and he says didn't you ever want to just disappear lunch boy poof you're gone you'll be surprised how interesting people become when they think you are really stupid. <laughs> it's an incredible scene as well because he reveals himself and he's, his character completely changes and you think, oh my God, mm. he's not the village idiot as everyone thinks he is. Mm. And he knows a lot more than he lets on and he mm. saves the day at, at the end of the film, essentially. So he, he's a really interesting character. Yes, and he's actually in the film, which... <laughs> Yeah, he is. It does help. Throughout. So, it's the 90s. There's lots of great hair and clothing on display in this movie. Did you have a favourite piece of costume? Uh, I mean, I think just Rachel all the time. Uh, (laughs) Everything about her was just oozing, oozing 90s. Her tribal tattoo on her arm, her nose ring, her low-riding hipster jeans, her neck choker... (laughs) Um, just everything about her and her always exposed midriff as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly the same one I had. I just love the fact that even though she's got all these piercings and this exposed midriff and these boots at the bottom of this otherwise pretty normal outfit, actually, yeah, that she still kind of just looks like Katie Holmes, <laughs> like the girl next door. She doesn't really look all that tough. No. No, not at all. So, I mean, onwards to uh, most 90s moment. Uh, What was yours, Conrad? Oh, I have so many things written down here. I've got things we've mentioned already, like the -the on-the-nose Seattle alt-rock soundtrack choices and Mm -hmm. Steve's degraded video flashbacks. But one thing I noticed in particular was Gavin leaving a message for his friends on a self-recorded CDR. (laughs) 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 very 1998 that you would record video on a cdr (laughs) yeah yeah i I mean i remember getting pirated vcds from friends who would go to thailand and get the latest film on vcd but because vcds were so small you had to put them on two cds so you would watch this film and then halfway through it would just eject the cd you had to put second disc in It was really low resolution as oh, well. Terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> what about you? My 90s moment for this film. Uh, you've mentioned it before, but the 
always important explanation of all the cliques of the school. <laughs> so, I mean, Gavin goes through them, and I really love how um, UV kind of footnotes every clique with this little rhyming thing that he says. So, so motorheads are freaks who fix leaks. Nerds are freaks that go squeak. Skater kids are freaks in sneaks. And the blue ribbons are freaks so chic. And it's, it's just <laughs> nicely kind of bullet points every kind of group of teenagers. Yeah, which means that this, is, again, is either this little routine that these two guys do to every newcomer that comes to the school. <laughs> Well, they're just impossibly cool. They should both be in stand-up. Oh, for sure. They should be writing novels. <laughs> yeah. Favourite scene, Conrad? Um, my favourite scene was Steve returning home to find Lorna Langley in his living room, supposedly for a tutoring session with his sister Lindsay, and emerging from the bathroom half-naked with one of her breasts exposed, forcefully kissing him, and then going seriously mad, developing Terminator eyes, smashing her head in a mirror and attacking Steve with shards of glass, and then leaving. Because mm, mm, <laughs> she had a test in the morning. <laughs> she, she did. Wanted to save her fluids or something. Yes, it's a genuinely shocking and transgressive scene, I thought, especially in America, the nipple, because whenever a woman shows a nipple, don't they lose their career? Isn't that the way that it goes? And then the, the man carries on fine? <laughs> I mean, I looked up her filmography. She hasn't really done anything after. That's not good. Maybe I'm right. But my point being just that you can have one fuck in a PG, but I'm surprised that you could get away with a, uh, an exposed breast in, in this movie. Mm. It does feel quite out of place. And because it's not sexualized, it's actually quite a disturbing scene. It's the one scene where I thought, ah, this could have actually been interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, it really delivers with its shock value. It does, yes. How about you? What was your favourite scene? Uh, well, I've mentioned it before, but the janitor scene, Pied Pipering, hmm. all the blue ribbons into the waterfall. <laughs> Love it. And with that line, teacher, leave those kids alone. <laughs> I mean, it, it went cheesy and then just went one step above and it's just, oh, perfect. <laughs> if you're completely taking this movie so bad it's good oh it's so good <laughs> <laughs> if he turned the radio on and Pink Floyd came out that would be even better oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay so cliche is there a cliche that you spotted are we going for horror I guess the um, the mental asylum scene mm. it's almost like they just plucked it out of the stereotype dictionary <laughs> and just Put it on screen. I don't know. There was no care in that scene. It was just exactly what you expected. Yes, you even have Caldecott's daughter doing that thing that crazy people do, which is repeat the same nonsense phrase uh. over and over again in a sing-songy voice, and she even does it after the end credits end. But then uh, Rachel punches her in the face, which <laughs> I, didn't ex I did not expect that. But uh... <laughs> No, and she really goes for it as well. She windmills that bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for me, I think it's just when you open a movie and you pan down from an establishing shot of the town to kids in a parked car making out. <laughs> uh, something. Okay. Yeah. It's every teenage movie ever. <laughs> yeah. But 
Seeing as it ends with the guy in the car breaking the girl's neck, I suppose they sort of subvert it, so maybe they rescue it. But still, I did groan inwardly when we started to see teenagers making out in a car. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) How about special effect? Did you have a favourite special effect in this movie? I mean, I will say straight out of the bat, I did not. (laughs) I mean, I I struggled a little bit to think of something because it wasn't a lot of special effects in this film. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess the only one really was the eye. Their eyes would glow red, Terminator eye. Mm. I kind of thought that was nice and subtle. It wasn't too optical looking, uh, like in Mm. in 80s films where it's obviously not (laughs) in the scene. It's just been drawn on. Um, I thought they did that well. uh, And it was subtle and it wasn't too cheesy, I guess. And how about sound in this movie? You mentioned before you thought the sound design may have been lacking. Did you have a favourite sound? I think a lot of the time they replaced sound design with just score. One scene where the Blue Ribbons are confronting this Dicky character who previously was some sort of badass, I guess, uh, and they've confronted him and they're going to take him down. And they, they turn on these torches and they make this really peculiar sound where it's, it's almost like a shh. Like a torch doesn't make that sound. I don't I don't know what they were going for, but um, yeah, whatever that sound was, <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> That's exactly what I have written down to wow. the letter, yes. I think it's on the score. I think it's coming from Mark Snow's Sinclavia. I don't oh. And again, I think it's another case where there just weren't sound effects, so he just thought, oh, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's ridiculous. But I mean, obviously, the X-Files always had this obsession with torches, so it makes sense to me that turning a torch on should be a major event. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to uh, reinstate blood rating for this film because I felt like it was very poor Mm. very very poor uh the blood was it just looked like strawberry syrup um yes yes glistening gloopy and and yeah the sort of thing that would be very tasty on ice cream Um, (laughs) yes exactly yeah if if we do it out of five stars this is getting a one it's just as bad as 70s red paint it's terrible easily easily a one it didn't look horrifying it looked delicious (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wanted it dribbled on a sunday it looked great yeah and finally uh the funniest scene or something that you thought tickled your funny bone (laughs) oh something that tickled my funny bone was actually in the finale of the movie and i don't know quite what it was but after steve went through that whole scene where he was tied up like arnold schwarzenegger in total recall and he manages to rip his arms free and stab a guy exactly like total recall the very next scene when he's running along to escape you cut to this shot of this guy this technician and he just takes a pipe to the face <laughs> and goes down like a ton of 
bricks like a puppet with its strings cut and I was in hysterics and I don't know why I think it's because you can't see Steve there's just this arm and this pipe and this guy in the centre of the frame <laughs> taking it to the face I thought it was great <laughs> yeah that is the exact same scene that I put down as well because really it, it almost seemed like it was straight from Austin Powers or something just something yeah. just ridiculous and also I feel really sorry for that extra having that two second scene where he just gets a pipe to the face (laughs) (laughs) show that to your (laughs) mum and that's our mooblies yes Welcome back, listeners. It's final verdict time, so although I'm sure you've been on the edge of your seats wondering whether we are going to release disturbing behaviour to be a substitute teacher in a strangely all-black school, or whether we're going to load it onto a pickup truck and drive it into a waterfall, now's the time you'll find out. Dan, what do you say? I mean, <laughs> I I kind of like this film purely because it's 90s and it's nostalgic and it's it just makes me go, oh, and, and remember the good old days when when I was in high school and didn't have to pay rent. Um, but <laughs> it's a film full of flaws and full of holes and full of like, oh, I wish they'd done this and the, I wish they'd explored this and maybe this character could have gone this way. So much potential. I would love for this film to be remade because there, there is so... The premise alone is interesting and intriguing and has it could have gone in so many different directions Mm. but it did it and it really failed and especially from the halfway point to the end i felt like it wasn't even really a film and the conclusion was highly unfulfilling and i didn't really care about the characters and the the love interest between rachel and steve just didn't make any sense ah so many problems with this film and i'm really sorry Mm. redma 61 i hope you don't love this film because it was not (laughs) it's not a great film i would not recommend this film i would recommend it to people that grew up in the 90s for uh purely to say hey remember the 90s watch this film (laughs) (laughs) it's the 90s in a can (laughs) but apart from that i i think the film really does try to be different it's not another slash film it is trying to be different and it is Hmm. trying to do something that has been explored i guess with different wives but yeah does not succeed Straight into the waterfall, I shall push it. (laughs) (laughs) Leave those kids alone. Yeah. I have to say that if we were looking for a film that was going to change my overall opinion of 90s horror movies, disturbing behaviour is not it. Because despite having lofty ambitions and a great premise that could easily have been mined in a variety of subtle and interesting and genuinely disturbing ways, as it was in something like Get Out, where it explored race relations in subtle ways that completely opened my mind to the state of the situation in America, which... Mm 
I found it really educational, actually. Mm. And you could have done that with with teenagers and their relationship with adults, and teenage suicide, and body image, and, mm. and entitled sexuality, and you could have done a huge heap of things. And it sort of touches on some of them here and there. But um, yes, I had no idea that the director was kind of struggling with the writer's intentions, and I knew that he was struggling with the studio who every time he put some character development in, they took it out. So Mm. what we're left with, it just doesn't work on any level. It's not so bad. It's good. It's not satirical. It's not Heathers. It's not society. Mm. It's just kind of 90s pop video soundtrack album selling thing Mm. that Mm. lasts for 80 minutes and doesn't engage me at all, except when somebody takes a pipe to the face. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I think I'll give disturbing behaviour a pipe to the face and throw it in a waterfall as well. Okay, disturbing behaviour, stand still. (laughs) (laughs) And by it goes. Goodbye. Yeah, sorry, Red Mar 61. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's a great nostalgic movie for the 90s, Mm. but I'm not, not very nostalgic about the 90s, so... Time to move on. So what are we doing next episode? So next time we're going to be watching another movie featuring one of your favourite actors. Yes, it's Sam Neill again. And this time we'll be watching him in the 1994 horror film... In the Mouth of Madness. Ooh, I'm looking forward to discussing that. It's very intriguing. So have you seen this movie before? Yes, I have. Uh, Not for a little while, but um, it'll be nice to revisit it and see if I still... Mm. uh, Still feel the same. Yes, should be interesting. It's the third part of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, preceded by The Thing and Prince of Darkness. So it's sort of late-era Carpenter, so... Interesting. We haven't done a Carpenter movie before. Mm. And if you want to get in touch with us to talk about the film that we've just discussed, Disturbing Behaviour, whether you disagree with our verdict, or if you want to talk about anything else in particular, please find us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are Movie Oubliette. We are, and you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com if you have even more to say. We would love to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform. You have no idea how much it helps. And also, share us. Share us Mm. abound on everything, every day. (laughs) Yes, tell your friends. Yes. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and join us again next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. You know, the problem with America is mankind's abject unwillingness to contribute to the delinquency of minors. <laughs>